what happens when you see something and you spontaneously laugh or you break into applause or you jump to your feet? What effect did that have on your body? Hello and welcome to Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. I'm Barbara St. Clair and I'm here with John Parks who brings with him an amazing resume. John, you are a dancer, you are a choreographer, you are a teacher, you are a leader, you are a philosopher, I believe. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You were in New York in the 60s. What was happening in New York City and also throughout the country was was really amazing and revolutionary. And one of the things that I noticed about myself as I've grown up is that I forgot how transformative those years were, how much creativity, a tremendous release of energy into our world. You were at the center of that. It was an exciting time, a very exciting time. And it's one that I really miss. Those were cherished years for me. Transformative is a good word because that, that's what it really was. In the dance community, I'm saying the dance community, but it's really more the arts community in general. There was a sense of collaboration and camaraderie and sharing of ideas that I haven't seen since that time. You know, I would work with Archie Shep or Duke Ellington or Sun Ra or painters like Romeo Bearden, and not to mention choreographers, but just visual artists, Mary McKeeba. And the list just goes on and on. I mean, in terms of the civil rights, and I don't know whether or not it was the civil rights movement or the Pan-Africanism or the Black consciousness, but there was a galvanization of ideas and of people, like-minded people, that really kind of worked together. You know, I don't want to just say that it was the Black community because it was it spanned the whole spectrum. You know, I remember the play here, you know, the age of Aquarius, the dawn of a new age. This was so exciting in the in the arts community that this was new beginnings. Haight Ashbury in San Francisco, Woodstock, all of that was happening all at the same time. And it was very, very exciting. And we felt that we had we had agency and we had permission and we made a difference. And we were free to experiment on what was happening. We questioned things and we pushed the envelope. But it was also for me, I had a dance company called Movements Black Dance Repertory Theater during that time. And that dance company, we did all Afrocentric works, all the music, the costumes, the choreography, all dealt with people of the diaspora. And the, and the ideas of that. And so we we were the suitsayers and prophet of the time where we reflected what was happening during that time. I did a piece called The Man's the Clan, you know, and, and other works that dealt with what was happening in the streets, in the political situation, what was happening in terms of Africa and South Africa and apartheid. I mean, all of those things were we commented on. And the collaborations that we had were more specific in terms of raising money for the Black movement through right. arts. So that's my connection with Duke Ellington and IS-120, Cooper Hall. All of those events were events to raise money for the people in the sit-in movement, the bus sit-in movement, to get the student nonviolence students out of jail 
to get the Panthers out of jail, food for support the Panthers in their preschool and breakfast program. One of the keys for me was that you're using dance in other ways other than performance. And that was something that we're gonna kind of stuck with me and I've been, I've been working towards ever since. I think it's so important to talk about that time and share the memories of that time and the accomplishments of that time is I found in my sort of self an amnesia about that. And that amnesia limited my ability to think about what I could change and what was possible for the arts and what was possible for the arts in terms of society and helping people to think in new and different ways and seeing what could be and really challenging the status quo. But do you know why? Do you know why that sense of amnesia was there? I would love to talk about that. I would love to hear what you think. Well, I would say number one, the assassination of, of Martin Luther King, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, the assassination of Malcolm X, the police control and infiltration of the Black Panthers, all of those things and, and many more had stopped us from thinking. I know for me, stopped me from thinking about forward moving. Right. And reflecting on the past because, and AIDS, and the AIDS epidemic that robbed us of a generation and a half of everything, but mostly artists. So that the generation coming up, there was a gap there in terms of stepping on the shoulders of and learning from. There was that big gap of a, almost a generation and a half. What would happen? What would Broadway be if Michael Bennett and Michael Peters was alive? Well, tell me, what would it be? I don't know. Who knows? It wouldn't be what it is now because they were up and coming. They were coming with a new concept in terms of theater. Michael Peters choreographed a lot of the Michael Jackson videos. Michael Peters and Michael Bennett worked on Chorus Line. So there was a void there. That's how Andrew Lloyd Webber came in because we didn't have that. We didn't have that creativity. I mean, because I thought about it. I mean, why, why am I silent? So we didn't talk for 25 years. We didn't say a word for 25 years. I'm talking about the 70s, 80s. 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, we started coming back, right. you know. I see that time now from today's perspective as a promise. I sort of see that incredible output of creative product and creative process from the 60s that we did lose the momentum for. And I think your point about AIDS and the assassination, but certainly the loss of a generation and a half of arts leaders but what was done, what was accomplished, is a promise of what could be. Right. Mm -hmm. So rather than an interruption, I'm feeling this energy of reconnecting with power, artistic power, creative power, mm -hmm. leadership power. Right. Yeah, no, I, th I think you're absolutely right. There's been distance there, you know, and I think that it's like when water finds its own level. <laughs> and it gets disrupted and it gets it gets wavy and but after a while when there's calm it finds its own level and i think that there's a resurgence here and i think that that power is there 
in terms of creative arts, I think it's it's really happening. And I think it's happening in terms of art and its relationship with the community, which is which I feel is very healthy. I can see it happening in some things that I'm doing. I am working with the Strass Performing Arts Center mm-hmm. in connection with Fred Johnson, who's been working at the Strass for a number of years and who was quite instrumental a number of years ago with the Community Arts Ensemble, where he would bring in non-artists, just people off the street, and work with them for six weeks. They would develop original play, original songs, original choreography, and present it at the Strass. And these were people who, some had some experience in dance and some had no experience in dance, ages from nine months old to 70. And I had the opportunity to work with him with that for a number of years. And as a result of that, that's how, from my point of view, the Patel Conservatory was funded through his efforts in terms of that. And now he's back and we have formed something called the Arts Legacy through Julie Lisi's interest in developing and prolonging her legacy. So we develop a performance or presentation group that performs outside of the Strass, on the grounds of the Strass, and we do a presentation once a month. Oh, wow. And it's free of charge. That involves the community and community engagement and then watching live performances. But the material that we do deals with the Native Americans or the Hispanic community or the Indian community or the African community or the Italian community. So we each one of our performances deals with a certain subject matter that people are exposed to, little known facts that they may not be aware of. And, and, and the participants of that are local community people. I think that's a way that we are kind of coupling and bringing the community together. I'm also right. doing something that's called the Veteran Civilian Arts Ensemble. Mm-hmm. And this, this was an offshoot of the Avalo Architecture and Design Dance Company coming in and performing a number of years ago. It was a collaboration of veterans and civilians. And the idea was for them to work together. The collaboration and the performance was so successful that they didn't want to stop meeting. And now it's the Veteran Civilian Arts Ensemble. So we're bringing in painters. Oh, cool. We're bringing in vocalists. We're bringing in sculptors, people who are writing. And so we're meeting every other week. It's a way to blend those two communities together. And so I see other things like that happening. And I I think that's very, very exciting. In your biography, I think it said you started dancing when you were five. And you said that most of the people who study dance are women. So as a man, a young man, and and again, Black man, in in an environment that I don't know how welcoming it might have been for you as a young person coming into the dance world, but I I would really like to hear how you got involved and and what your path was to become, you know, a a major dancer in a major company and then a choreographer and and now a teacher. Well, uh... (laughs) Well, I did study. I studied. At, I started studying at five. I studied tap, and it was at a school called Mary Bruce School in Harlem. Mary Bruce was a woman that taught tap 
And her sister had a studio in Chicago, Sadie Bruce. And the two of them opened dance studios. Now, Mary and Sadie Bruce were supposed to have been, from what I understand from my conversation with her, a relative of Bill Bojangles. Mm. So he was a big, big star. You know, in his day, he made more money than any other dancer on the planet. And Mary Bruce had said, well, can you teach me? And he says, no, I, I am not going to teach you because they're not going to allow a Black dancer, a Black woman dancer, female dancer, a shot. You know, number one, you're Black. Number two, you're a woman. And during that time, all of those other dancers basically were men, hoofers. They were all hoofers. Right. Right. She did learn, a few, he did throw out a few steps and she was self-taught the way he was taught. There okay. weren't schools, you know, there weren't places and especially places for anyone of color. So she opened the school up and I studied there. I can't say it was great. I can't say it was a great training school. I took ballet there and she did not know how to teach ballet. She he, she was a hoofer. But we had our concerts at Carnegie Hall. You know, I can say at an early age, I performed at Carnegie Hall, right? And it was my entree into the dance community. As a result of that, Old Met was looking for Black dancers or Black kids for AIDA. And so at the age of 12, I performed Aida at the Met. We did Aida and we also did another Italian play, La Pedico. And we were able to tour during that time, I think Washington and Philadelphia. Because during that time, this <laughs> it gives you some background of the times. Wednesday in New York City was a religious holiday. So you could, in the afternoon, you were dismissed from your classes to worship the way that you wanted to. So if you wanted to go to mass or you wanted to go to temple or you wanted to go wherever you want to go, you could go and worship there Wednesday afternoons. And that was matinee time. Ah. I didn't miss any school at all because I would perform my matinees. That was my religion. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> and so I would I would do that. But yes, yeah, you know, you are you're anxious and you study and you you know that there is obstruction around and there's resistance as you were growing up, but you you travel through time and space. You you travel and you do what you have to do. And unless it hits you directly, sometimes the racism um you're not really aware of it too much. You know what I mean? I am. I was more aware of uh, obstruction after it happened than I was while it was happening. I mean, there were things like, I mean, I went to Juilliard, but I also went to the high school performing arts. And during the summer, they would always give scholarships to people to study during the summer. I did not get any of those scholarships or those appointments, you know, mm -hmm. until I went to them and said, well, you know, you're giving this out to everyone else. There wasn't that many men in the department. So all the guys had gotten the scholarships as an incentive to keep on dancing. But I had to ask for that, you know, and you do that and you just go on. It, it's, it's, it's interesting as a person of color raised in this country, 
a lot of the things are assumed. If you kind of look at it from the outside, you say, well, why did that happen? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? But if you grow up as a, as a black male in this environment, you are indoctrinated to it. You are a part of it and you assume certain things. Like for instance, we talk about the talk that every black boy has in terms of what to do when you're stopped by police. Don't do that, don't do this. But that, that conversation is, is inbred in you. You don't know why necessarily why that is, or if you do, it's part of your culture. And so you kind of adapt to it, you know, mm -hmm. which is a real sad thing, I feel. It's a real sad thing. But those kinds of things happen. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. You're, you're driving a car and you come up to a red light. There is a person with a homeless sign, a Black person with a homeless sign on the curb, right? they might start walking towards your car. Me, I think of myself as being conscious, you know, mm -hmm. racially conscious, an Afrocentric person who has who lived through a lot of stuff. What do I do? I look and see if my door is locked, right? So if I do that from an automatic point of view, then I would say, most of the people on this planet will do the same thing, or most people in the United States will do the same thing. Sure. We're conditioned. It's like, a, it's like being brainwashed. It's hard to dispel that. And so when you ask me, what was it like? <laughs> it, was, it, it was, in retrospect, it wasn't healthy. During the time, you did what you could, and you, and you took what you could. You know, my first experiences with dance companies were in all white dance companies. I was the first person of color in the Limon company. I was at one point the only person of color in the Anna Sokolo company. I mean, I've worked with Mary Anthony, Ruth Courier, you know what I mean? I did Hanukkah festivals. I mean, I, I work with a lot of white companies and the only one in, in those companies. Yeah, I mean, you know, the dance community is a lot more liberal than the rest of the environment, you know what I mean? Where you are judged primarily on your ability. Not to say there wasn't racism there, there was, but it, it didn't reflect the same degree in the same way as the rest of the United States. And also you're in New York City. I danced with Alatunji's company, a West African dance company. Mm -hmm. And we actually did some work for the World's Fair. 1968 World's Fair. The one in New York City? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was at that one. You were. I was. <laughs> I danced there for a while, but I was in the Lamont Company. I toured with, with Jose in the 60s in 1962, touring the South with a bus and truck, one night stands. And so, you know, one night stands, you arrive in town that day, check into your hotel, you try to scramble around to get something to eat and do whatever you need to do, get your shoe shine, get a haircut or whatever you have to do before you go to the theater to space and work on lighting and get ready for the performance that night. 
that night you perform, you go either to a reception or you try to go out to eat, but you go back to the hotel, go to bed. Next day, you get on the bus, go to the next spot. One night stands. We did that. You know, some of them were two nights and some of them were three nights, but basically it was a one night stand. Uh, touring the South with, a, and we were on buses. We were on a bus with New York State license plates, a company of 32 dances, and I'm the only African-American. Wow. So when we got to places, they thought we were agitators from the North, number one. <laughs> You were just a different kind of agitator. Exactly. exactly. Number two, they thought that we were civil rights activists and we were part of the the bus sit-ins, the Mm -hmm. cafeteria bus sit-ins. So Mm -hmm. they didn't get too much flack, but I got a lot of flack. I had guns pulled on me. My life was threatened. When I went into, whether it was a restaurant or a store, the proprietor of the store would walk out along with all of the customers because during that time, they said that they wouldn't be able to, there was a stipulation that, you know, you can't really say that you can't serve anybody, you know, but they would say that they could serve me if I walked in with some of my dance, some of the dancers, they could serve me, but they couldn't serve anyone else. Oh, jeez. So, I mean, it was, I mean, it was, I mean, that was a wake-up call for me. So that was a reality of all that I had not been exposed to doing my time in New York City. Certainly Emmett Till and the death of Emmett Till in 1950-something was a traumatic change for me. My mother, who's from the South, did not even want me to go down there. She said she 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 was afraid that, you know, because I'm I would be like Emmett Till. I'm born and raised in New York City. Right. You know what I mean? I'm footloose and fancy free, you know, you know, and so I didn't have all of those sensibilities of what to do, what not to do in the South. I knew what to do and what not to do in the North. So that was what I was dealing with racially, you know. How did you connect with the Alvin Ailey Company? Well, I was working with Donnie McHale. You know, during that time, you can work with a number of different companies at the same time because the, you probably only had one performance. And the way that the choreographers worked, they worked for long periods of time developing the work. It was an arduous task. You did your research. You studied the characters. You worked on the pieces. Pieces were not just thrown together. So it took time. And the choreographers and dance companies, they they embraced the fact that they couldn't support you except for maybe the performance. So they allowed, because the work was so slow in being developed, you can step away and you can come back. So people would work with a number of different companies at the same time. So I was working with Anna Sokolo, and this was all in one facility. This was at Clark Center. I was working with Anna Sokolo, I was working with Elio Pomar and Rod Rogers, dance companies. And the Ailey Company did not have their facility. They were also working in the same building. And Clark Center would say, we'll give you rehearsal time if you would just do a performance. So all four companies would be rehearsing at the same time. Oh, that must have been fun. Or different studios. 
It was beautiful. It was really beautiful. Yeah. And so we did the performance and Ailey asked me to join the company. He saw me dance in, in three of the other, three of the other company's works, you know. Yeah. And so I, I declined. Oh. I told him that all of your dances are soloists. Dudley Williams, Bill Luther, Clive Thompson, all were soloists with the Graham Company. Carmen de Lavala. I mean, they were all soloists. They mm -hmm. were principal dancers in other companies. I said to him, I said, when I joined this company, I don't want to be delegated. <laughs> I want to yeah. be like them. I want to be able to contribute, you know? And he says, well, you, you, you will. That's why I'm asking you. I said, no, but I don't feel I need to learn a few things. Wow. I need to learn a few things. So I declined. And about a couple of years later, I saw that he was having an audition because he said, well, when you're ready, just give me a call. You know, so, oh, you know. Yeah, keep that in your pocket. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is get out of jail free card. <laughs> but I saw he had audition. Exactly. And so I, I didn't call. I went to the audition. And the reason why I went to the audition, because I wanted to see for myself how I feared with other people who were auditioning. Then I knew that that would be a right fit for me. And I was accepted and I joined the company. And you know how you have to put your resume for the program. You have to do a resume for the program. So I, I gave him my, my resume and we are in rehearsal on the east side on 59th Street. And he stops rehearsal, reads my resume and signs his name at the bottom saying that I'm honored to be among the people that you have worked with. Wow. I, you know, I'm getting chills every time I, every time I, I, I say this story, I was, you know, I was floored. I was really floored, but I mean, that's the kind of humanity and honesty and humility that, that, that man had, you know, it didn't serve me right with the rest of the cast. <laughs> the rest of the company started looking at me. Who's this guy? You know, you know, you know, this is a new guy, you know? So I, I, had, I ran into a little static with that, but I was, was in good stay with, with Alvin. <laughs> this is a good experience. Those some wonderful artists, just wonderful artists that were so giving and all of them were so, so special. I mean, I, I, I had been in other companies, but to work with a group of artists that were so eclectic in what they did, you know, we would do John Butler's work. And then we would change and do Tally Beatty's work. John Butler was a ballet choreographer, very much like Glenn Tetley. He wasn't a classical choreographer. He was a contemporary choreographer of the day. Tally Beatty used to dance with Catherine Dunham's company. He is actually touted to be creator of modern jazz technique. Stack Up, Alvin Ailey Stack Up, or Come and Get the Beauty of It Hot, or Takata. That choreography is Tally Beatty. Just a, a lot of different approaches. From jazz to ballet to Haitian, West African, those dancers could do it all. Yeah. They could do it all and, and not just do it. They could do it, you know. And it was just uh, amazing. I mean, just amazing. You know, you had Sarah Yabo and Miguel Gaudreau, Morton Winston, who were dancers with Harkness Ballet. 
just incredible dances. It was really and, something going on there, wasn't there? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a it was an it was an interesting time. And and Alvin, in terms of the works that he was doing, were really to kind of identify the black experience. Although he dealt with humanity in a way that reflected everyone's experience. You know, I mean, when you think of revelations, it certainly it deals with the black experience, but it is humanity. And it's universal. I mean, that's why it's a classic, because it has withstood the test of time and it can affect everyone. That in Blue Sweet and other works that he's done. So that is where he was coming from in terms of his in terms of his works, which I didn't always agree with. I thought that he could be a lot more radical than he was, but I have since seen the error in my ways. <laughs> Yeah. You've changed and yeah. you have a different, you bring different things now. But I think that's part of why you went ahead and with the Movements Black dance group, right? Yeah, yeah. To, well, actually, that was that was actually before I joined the company. Oh. I, I was already indoctrinated. <laughs> I joined the early company in 1970. And Movements Black was, I think, in 1967, 68. Okay. So I, I left my own company to join this company. That's uh, a pretty strong statement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just my company. I shouldn't say that. There were five corporate members. There was Ronald Pratt, Judy Daring, Miriam Greaves. Chuck Davis was a member of it as well. Mm. And myself. I'm sort of jealous. <laughs> You know, but also in awe, I guess, you know, that much creativity and that much sense of possibility and the ability to impact. I was looking at a statement about the movements Black and you wrote, dance is a barometer of the times. That is true for many art forms and many artists, but because dance is storytelling in the moment, that feels very, very true. Mm -hmm. And then I would want to sort of bring us back to the present. If dance is a barometer of the times, what is the barometer saying to us now and how is it expressing itself? Mm, interesting question. Interesting question. I hesitate. I'm hesitating. You know why? Because I tell my students, this is your time. Yes. This is your time. I, I did some heavy lifting during my time. I'm offering you possibilities and opening the vistas for you. I can't tell you what to do. You have your finger on the pulse of what's happening. You know, and quite frankly, I, I can venture an opinion, but, you know, Gabron has uh, in the prophet, in the book, the prophet, he has a phrase and when he talks about children that the children are from you, but not of you. They have their own voice. They have their own time. They have, they live in the present. They live in the future. You give them birth and you give them access. So it's hard for me to say, and I don't really want to venture. I mean, I, I love answering your question, but I don't know Twitter. I don't know social media. I go to email kicking and screaming, <laughs> you know? And so, I mean, that's why a lot of my choreography is reflective. 
at this point. A lot of my teaching, although I might teach a codified technique, I teach it in a way that opens up areas for them so that they're not bound by, by convention. So what really struck me, and it's giving me those little goosebumps, is that was your journey as a young dancer. You were in the, this certain place in New York City at a certain time of the 60s where the creativity, the sort of almost like pent up creativity was explosive. And that was your journey. What you're sort of offering your students is the idea that this is their time. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, a lot of my focus is on, at this particular time in my life, is using dance as a healing modality, using the therapeutic elements of dance, of theater. An audience goes into a theater, and they come from all different walks of life, all different experiences. They might rush to the theater or whatever they're going to see, and they're talking with each other or they're reading programs or whatever. And the lights go down, the curtain comes up. There is a shared experience that happens where they are focusing in on what's in front of them. When they leave that theater, they are different than when they walked in. Yes. That's exciting to me. That inquiry into what happens to the body as an audience member. What does the dopamine? What happens to the brain? What happens to the physiology in terms of that experience? What happens to the performer performing? Now that the scientific community recognize that the arts and dance is a tool for healing, how do we assess that? How do we evaluate that? So part of what I'm doing with John Hopkins is working with them in a way to help define that. The Peabody Institute is working on a degree program so that dancers, after they graduate, can go into hospitals, go into therapy, not as dance therapy, but as dancers with those skills to help physical ailments, emotional ailments through movement. Right. And so that's where my focus is, is now. I'm also teaching a course at Valencia that's called Movement and Health. The course is dealing with breathing. The course is dealing with yoga. The course is dealing with meditation. The course is dealing with movement. I mean, a lot of the Graham exercises, the floor exercises are meditative movement. Louis Swigard's corrective rests are courses that I had at Juilliard. Work very well for dancers, non-dancers, but using dance as that tool. And what other ways can dance be beneficial in healing and wellness for others. You did mention John Hopkins, and you are involved with them in the International Arts and Mind Lab of the Brain Science Institute mm -hmm. at John Hopkins University School of Medicine. So what are they trying to learn there? Well, they're trying to learn what happens to the body when you were exposed specifically to dance and to assess what that is. If you were able to take someone's blood pressure or their heartbeat as they watch dance and see what was stimulated 
how different movements affected the body in different ways. We know this as dancers because we know how that communicates. But in a way to assess it and a way to document it and to analyze it has not been done before. I mean, what happens when, when you see something and you spontaneously laugh or you break into applause or you jump to your feet? What, 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 is, what, what did you see? What was that? What, did it, what effect did that have on your body? What caused right. that, that visceral reaction to you? Right. So it's interesting. It's very interesting. <laughs> to ask you, since you are connected with young people as a faculty member at the university, what are young people thinking and saying about the field of dance and about what's going on in the world and how they might want to express it, thoughts about it as artists? I mean, it's very refreshing because they come in with the concept of ballet companies and modern companies and well, competition. And it takes about a year for them, for them to cleanse their mind so that they can think and open their perspectives in other ways. But uh, they are quite exciting in terms of the things that they are coming up with in terms of using their degree in alternative ways. There's a big push. A lot of my students are into health and wellness. It's a little bit more than just going into physical therapy or a massage therapy but they're really interested in using dance as a healing modality, which I find very refreshing. And to recognizing the skills that one has as you're trained in dance and using that in other ways. We have attention to detail. We have a good work ethic. We have a lot of stamina, a lot of endurance as dancers, and we can recognize body language. And those are all good qualities as a performer in the arts, but it's also attributes that can be used in other fields as well. I find that some of the students, as they graduate, they go into arts administration and they fit in right there. We do have a number that have formed companies and that are with major dance companies. I mean, there is a whole spectrum. As, as you know, most of the students who study dance in elementary junior high, high, or college are women. And, you know, not all of them are going to be in dance companies or work professionally. Right. And us as a, a university, we recognize that realism and try to train them in a way or educate them in a way where there are more options. They have more options. Yes, the performing element, taking technique classes is always going to be there. But for them to study kinesiology, for them to study uh, movement analysis, for them to study dance history, for them to be involved in dance administration or anthropology or some of the other sciences is, is open to them. And those skills are not lost in those professions. I mean, I just remember years ago where a friend of mine who was a professional dancer in New York, and there wasn't that much work. And there's, you know, there isn't a lot of work. If you're working as a freelance dancer, you're, you're not really working a lot, but she was a nurse and she sure. got her degree and she became a doctor, but she still was a dancer and she still danced when she could. As a matter of fact, her profession 
as a doctor supported her dance career. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, we talked back in the day, well, you can wait tables and this and that. No, you can have four and five different careers. I always say that I would like to teach a student that is the first student to choreograph something in weightlessness oh. with non-gravity. Most of my work had been concert work in dance. And George Faison had asked me to come in to work on The Wiz. And I, I started out as his assistant to the choreographer and then became swing dancer and dance captain. And, and it was interesting. It was interesting. I, I was just telling someone recently that I gained a respect for Broadway and musical theater that I had not known before, had not experienced before. Coming from a concert work, you know, we were so studious in what we were doing and, and tunnel-minded and we were focused in on this. And I had no idea that that same attention to detail was also, and more, was experienced in the Broadway theater element, where you would have dancers and singers and actors working together collaboratively. We always imperceptibly are working towards, I think, towards what we're going to do. And a lot of what I have done have been maybe eclectic, but it's been on a path of inquiry. So doing a Broadway show was a unique experience in terms of coming off of doing, you know, with, with Ailey, you would do Revelations almost every performance. You had a repertoire of 15 pieces. By the time I ended 20, 20 pieces, you know, and Revelations would be one piece, but you would have maybe five sections in that that you would dance, you know. So it was a lot of a lot of different works. And doing the Wiz, you had one show, eight performances of one show. How do you make it exciting for the audience and for yourself? How do you keep it alive? Because if you don't keep it alive, once it becomes boring, people are not going to come. Right. It's not going to be profitable. It's not going to be good for you. How do you keep it alive? And you don't want to be on the stage and do and just run through it, you know, go through it. From a from a modern dance point of view, that's not how we roll, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and most of the company, most of the dance company, mostly all of the dancers came from a modern dance background. George came from a modern dance background as a choreographer. And so... That's how we fashioned the show. It was very exciting, very exciting to be able to kind of, in a sense, settle down, be in New York, be with my family, and do a show that was, that was kind of revolutionary. It was a show that prior to that time, people weren't going to the theater. Broadway was dying. The Wiz helped vitalize Broadway. Number one, it brought a clientele in that normally would not necessarily go to see a show. Brought a Black community, a Black church community in that the works that were on Broadway didn't represent them. In addition to that, it was a revival. And it was well, well done. It was exciting. Choreography was exciting. It was a dancer's show. Fosse had done dancer shows before, but this was a dancer's show the songs were great. It won seven Tony Awards. And so it was of that kind of caliber. 
And it wasn't the accolades that I, in my, it was the work that was so excellent that I really admired. And it, and it was good financially. I bought, I bought my brownstone from, from doing that show. <laughs> and it was the beginning of revivals. I mean, that was really an important show. And I love the fact that you were well compensated, <laughs> you know? That you could make a good living doing that too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because of course that is a very major issue for artists in this community right now. It's true. How you how you have financial well-being and do your art, do your work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was asked to do the Wiz film that Lewis Johnson had choreographed. The film had Dinah Ross in it and Michael Jackson and the usual suspects, right? And when I came in to do it, I realized that the dancers were being paid day-to-day -day workers. So in other words, during that time as a day player, you would get paid $66 a day. Although the dancers were required to sign contracts for the duration of the rehearsal and the film. I joined the rehearsal process kind of like late in the game because I had other I was doing a one-man show, and I toured United States and Europe mm -hmm. doing a one-man show with the affiliate artist program. And so when I realized that was $66 a day, I told Lewis, I said, Lewis, I can't, I can't afford to do this. I got other contracts that I have to fulfill. When I'm finished with those contracts, then I can join the rehearsals. And so I came in late in the show. Then I found out that the models were negotiating their contracts. And they were top models. They were top European models and American models. Needless to say, this was an all-Black show, right? And I talked about the Broadway being a dancer's show. The film was also a dancer's show. And so he had hired over 100 dancers from the United States and Europe. All Black dancers were working. It depleted Arthur Mitchell's company. So all of Arthur Mitchell's company was in the Wiz, along with alumni of Ailey's company and whatnot. The show had already basically been rehearsed and was ready to be filmed. So I organized to strike. And I got signatures by all of the dancers, all of the principal actors, Mabel Robinson, Michael Jackson, Ted Ross, Pepsi, everybody except Dinah Ross. And we struck four contracts so we can get paid the same as actors. Now, the reason why Dinah Ross did not sign was because the work was being produced by Barry Gordy and Motown. And she was starring in the show. Yeah. And so she had a vested interest in it, but we negotiated and changed our contracts to, and I don't remember whether it was pink or white or white or pink, but from whatever contract they had to another one that was basically an actor's contract, was similar to an actor's contract, which meant that the dancers would get retroactive pay. Wow. They would get hazard pay. They would get they would be recognized. So in other words, you know, when you do a, a, a film, when your face is recognized for a number of seconds, you get upgraded. If you have dialogue after a number of words, you get upgraded. 
So all these dances that were getting six to six dollars a day were now getting upgraded because of the work that Lewis had them do mm -hmm. uh, in, in the show. Like the Crows, for instance, they had dialogue. They were featured along with Michael Jackson. <laughs> you know, they got a tremendous boost in salary. I got pretty much nothing out of it <laughs> because I, I joined it last, but we're able to get that in the contract. And not only that, I negotiated to get representation for the Screen Actors Guild, Black representation in the Screen Actors Guild in front of and in back of the camera and put a dance representative, Cleo Quitman, in that position to monitor any other shows any other musicals that come up, that representation was there. So we got royalties where normally we wouldn't get royalties and we get our credit in the title. And so I just want to mention that because it is, I think it's significant as an advocate for dance, what we fight for in terms of our own rights. It's a hero's story. <laughs> you know, I mean, we all want to be change makers, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very concrete change. Yeah, yeah, I feel real good about that. You know, I mean, I, it just wasn't me, but I was part of it. You know, yeah, I feel I feel good about that to kind of turn some things around, some inequities, and if oh. you could do something about it, you know, then you know, God bless you. Your moment was perfect because all the rehearsals are done; they're all ready to shoot. <laughs> you had leverage, and you. You went for it. So Sylvie Lamette brought me into the trailer and said, you will never, ever work in film again. <laughs> That's fine with me. <laughs> I did two other films since that time. <laughs> that was not my goal in life, was to, to do film work. <laughs> so. so you had the freedom to have that much agency because it wasn't your goal. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, you knew who you were and you had done so many things to fulfill yourself as an artist. Thank you so much, John, for being here today. This has been a wonderful conversation. And I have been talking to John Parks, a professor at the University of South Florida, a choreographer, a dancer, a producer, a director, and a leader for the dance community, and now moving into dance and health and well-being. Thank you so much, John, for this great conversation. My pleasure. It was a delight talking with you. Thank you very much. I'm Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners. Visit St. Petersburg Clearwater, the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Arts In is produced by Sheila Cowley. It's easy to subscribe on your favorite podcast service. If you enjoy this program, we hope you'll share it with a friend. And you can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.